Hey everyone, Sarah Peck here, and this is the Startup Pregnant Podcast. Today, I get to talk to somebody who I have long learned from and watched and admired on the internet. She is an incredible women's leadership coach. She is the founder of Global Sisterhood Day, and she is a new mother. Nisha Moodley is driven by a belief in the immense power of sisterhood to help us expand both our individual and our collective freedom. She has been hosting retreats. She has been a coach for 10 years. She leads mastermind groups. She teaches online courses. And her work blends an interest in study in spirituality and holistic health and coaching and family systems. She works with women who feel a deep calling to offer their hearts and their hands in service to humanity. And through working with all of these women, she supports people in embracing their innate brilliance, expanding their freedom, embodying their leadership, and aligning their actions with their inner truth. Nisha and I get on an interview today, and she she shares so many brilliant insights with us. In this episode, we talk about how to create a safe container for learning and what it takes to show up and facilitate great retreats. How do you show up as a facilitator and really create a container for other people to get vulnerable and share and be true and authentic? We also talk about her business building journey alongside an unexpected and emotionally complex pregnancy. She shares the story of what it was like when she found herself pregnant in a very new relationship and how to navigate both the relationship as well as the pregnancy and what that has looked like. Welcome to the Startup Pregnant Podcast, where we talk to creative leaders about what it means to be an entrepreneur and a parent. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. This podcast is made possible by sponsors like you. Consider supporting this podcast with a monthly donation on our Patreon page. Head to patreon.com slash startup pregnant. We've got folks who we call our coffee friends who donate the equivalent of a cup of coffee each month to make this show possible. And we're backed by companies we believe in that can help make the lives of busy entrepreneurs and parents a little bit easier. If you want to become one of our company sponsors, head to startuppregnant.com slash podcast and get in touch. Hello, hello. I am so glad to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So I want to start with my favorite question, which is, can you tell me what your morning was like today? What time did you wake up? And what did you do? <laughs> yes, I can. I'm laughing because any parent can relate. So <laughs> my morning was waking up around 6.30 and then trying to convince my child to do whatever he was trying to do with me with his father instead. <laughs> so <laughs> saying like, go show that to Dada. And then like closing my eyes again and not really sleeping, which was kind of drifting. And then he'd come back and have something else to show me. And I'd try to convince him to go show it to his father, do it with his father. And then I got a few precious moments in bed to myself, maybe five minutes, 10 minutes while 
they got up and started the morning routine, the diaper change, the breakfast, you know, get the dog out to go to the bathroom, all those things. And so I got a few precious moments to myself to just lay there and be quiet. And then I joined the madness, you know, doing like breakfast and clothing and a poop explosion and an impromptu bath and a shower for me. And yeah, (laughs) that was my morning, (laughs) eating a couple of cast off pancakes myself. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Wasn't the most glamorous morning this morning. I do better some days than others with my own, you know, rituals, self care. And this morning was not one of those days that I excelled. And then what happens? Does your kid stay around the house? Is he taken care of by others? How does that look? What does that look like for you? Oh, I do always get some time to myself in the morning. It's just not quite consistent when that happens. So his dad took him out so that they could run an errand because we're about to get on a plane tomorrow and we have some errands to run. And so he and his dad went out, did some errands together, and I got to have a shower and get dressed and, you know, just prepare myself for the day, check in with my team, really, just to see how things are going. And our nanny comes three days a week, and today is one of those days. And so she arrives at 10, and I kind of got her set up with like the laundry. And, you know, we just had a check in because we're close and got to check in with each other and say hi and just, you know, how are you doing? How was your night? And so she started the laundry and some of the household tasks. And I got to dive into this conversation. So for as long as I've known about you, you have run programs around building circles for women and leadership and retreats and sisterhood. Can you tell us about the work you're doing today and the path that got you to here? Yes, I do still lead retreats. I do week-long retreats all over the world. Not all over the world, but (laughs) in several corners of the earth. And those are really incredible. It's so luxurious to be able to dive deep with a group, a small group of women for a full week. So That is an aspect of the way that I do my work. Also, we moved into a beautiful home in the last year in Mill Valley, California, which is just over the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco. And I've been leading gatherings here in my home as well, which has been really beautiful to just have even more in-person time with women, which is for me the ultimate. Like If we can sit in circle together and dive deep, that is like the best for me. And absolutely, if I could do that all the time, well, I do do it quite often and I really, really love it and enjoy it. And then I also have an online community called Soul of Leadership. And really the core focus of my work right now is, you know, all based on this belief that sisterhood is the space, the nourishing, supportive, and also the challenging space that is just perfectly primed for our growth and our expansion. So everything that I do is in the container of community and in the context of sisterhood and really in service of women rising in their leadership. And when I say rising in our leadership, what that looks like to me is that we are following what calls us. And what calls us is often really multifaceted. So as a mother, I feel called to both be with my child and show up in you know, the most loving way possible as his mother and show up for myself and my partner and my friends. But I also have my work outside of the home that I feel called to and the difference that I want to make in the world. 
and the ways that I enjoy working. And so to be able to show up for all of that is both, you know, the practice of sort of navigating my own needs in terms of self-care and how do I structure my schedule and all of the sort of tactical pieces, but also how do I embody the qualities that are most going to support where I'm going. And so that's what the body of work of Soul of Leadership is all about. And it's a really also a, quite a key component of the work that I do in Circle with Women, which is like really how do we embrace and embody our sensitivity and our resilience, right? How can we, you know, really fully embody integrity and sovereignty, curiosity, luminosity, all of these qualities that I think as we embody them more, we are more so in our resilience and our compassion and able to really lead in integrated ways connected to our wholeness. That's good for us. I think it's also good for the planet. And that's the kind of leadership that we need now. I want to say more than ever, but who knows? I've only been on the planet for 39 years. (laughs) But I can say I, I really do believe that that's what we need now. And I also think it's the only sustainable way, you know, for us to be embodying these qualities means that we're also looking kind of omni-considerately at all of the aspects of our lives, not just the work that we feel called to do, but also, you know, the relationships that we feel called to tend with ourselves and others. Was there an aha moment or an awakening of sorts when you realized that sisterhood and circling together was so important? Or have you always known it? What did your own transformation look like? Well, yes, it was sort of a culmination of a few things at a particular time in my life. So this was, I guess, around 2009 or so, 2010. I just started my business. I've been running my business for about a year. And just personally, at that time in my life, I was married and really struggling in my marriage. And I had a really great, I mean, I have many great girlfriends and I had many great girlfriends at the time, but one friend in particular, Kavita Patel, who's an extraordinary, extraordinary relationship coach, just, you know, and a wonderful human and one of my dearest friends. We were becoming friends at the time. And she was asking me, like, how is it going? You know, as friends do. And I was really talking about my marriage, like, kind of like how you would talk about the weather. (laughs) I was like, you know, it's hard, but we're working through it day by day. Like this, just this very shallow response, really. And she, (laughs) thank God for her, was like, okay, but how are you really doing? And then I would give her like maybe a little cut deeper and she'd be like, yeah, but how are you really feeling about it? And she just kept calling me deeper. And I was really annoyed and I was really uncomfortable. And it was really healing for me to talk about my marriage, which I was in an incredible amount of pain around but also really avoiding because what does it mean if we separate, we're going to have to detangle our lives and we, you know, he has a daughter and what happens to our relationship? It was complex, you know? And so I was in a lot of pain around it, but also a lot of avoidance around it. And so I was just having this firsthand experience of what it felt like to have a woman in my life really call me deeper into connection and vulnerability and how powerful that was. And then as I started courageously sharing more with other women in my life in particular, a lot of that shame that I was feeling, and it's not that it made the pain go away, but it had me face it more and it had me face my challenges more in my relationship more and feel more supported in my life. Like I really 
could face this and I could weather whatever, whatever needed to be weathered. So it really brought me out of avoidance a lot. And at the same time I was running my business, I had been doing one-on-one coaching and I had just started actually out of necessity because I just couldn't take more one-on-one clients. I had started doing group programs and I kind of thought that, you know, like the group program was like the less impactful little sister. Okay. Well, you know, if they can't afford it or I don't have time, like at least there's this. What I found out as we started circling together in this group program is that the women in the group program were having these profound transformations. Now, at the time, I was working with women around emotional eating and food addiction, which is still a thread that runs through the work that I do now. And so I'm working with them around emotional eating and and overeating and just health in general. And they were having these profound changes and they were lasting. And I just really sat with what is that about? Like, why does it feel like we're going deeper, faster, and the transformation is sticking here even more than with my one-on-one clients? Because I'm not really an accountability coach, like, you know, do this or else. Um, (laughs) It's not really my style. I've always been much more coaching in the emotional realms and seeding transformation from that place. I realized it was because we were sharing they were sharing. And because they were sharing the shame, again, as it was happening in my personal life, just having that space to share, the shame was being lifted. And when the shame was lifted, there was actually a space to come face to face to whatever, with whatever the challenge was. And then the transformation could happen because we were no longer in avoidance. And so I just got that here, I was really such a stand for freedom and freedom in general, but also freedom with food and with their bodies. And I realized that such an integral part of freedom was to actually be fully engaged with something and not in avoidance. And that sisterhood was providing this container, this space to actually move through a lot of that shame. And I was hooked. I've been hooked ever since. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Isn't that wild that sometimes the reason we start something isn't because of the aha, but it it can be, oh, from a business perspective, I need to scale in some ways. I can't take on more one-on-one work. I'm going to do these group circles. And you think they might be it. What did you say? The little sister? The little sister (laughs) too. (laughs) And how wild it was that it was so impactful. And in fact, that's influenced a lot of what you're building today. Totally. I fell into it. And Mm. it's become now the container is something that I think about when I'm creating anything, whether it's a retreat or an online course or Global Sisterhood Day, obviously, um, more obviously. It's like the first thing that I think about is the community, the container. How do we create this feeling of sisterhood, whether it's a deep dive retreat and I'm wanting to gel us in the beginning so that there's deep, profound connection, which I know will serve every individual person and the overall experience, or whether it's an online course where people may never meet one another, how do we actually create that feeling of connection and safety? Are there things that have worked really well, other things that have surprised you in terms of creating this container or facilitating connection, especially when it happens across the internets? Mm. One is me going first. So my willingness to be open to be vulnerable, and to share myself helps to facilitate the sort of space, the safety, the willingness of others to share. And the way in which I do that is really important. 
So if I'm sharing from a like, save me, help me, I need, you know, I need you to validate me or see me or hold me or tell me it's going to be okay. Like if there's any of that energy in my system when I'm sharing, then they're going to go into rescuer mode. Most Mm. likely a lot of people will go into rescuer mode and then we actually lose something because now we're relating as humans who need rescuing and need to rescue one another versus sovereign beings and we can hold space for one another. And so sharing in what I would describe as an accountable way, especially online. Right now, when I go to my girlfriends, I can be like, oh my God, I'm on struggling. But on the internet, and especially when I'm facilitating, I will share, but I share from the place of I've got myself. I'm okay. I might be really in it. I might be feeling a lot of pain, but I'm well-resourced. I'm okay. And I will often be very explicit about that. You know, like I'm solid. I'm good. I've got my girlfriends. I feel very well-resourced and I feel very supported. And this is what's going on for me personally right now. What's going on for you? Yes. Accountable sharing where I'm holding myself while I share, especially when I'm facilitating and definitely on the internet in general, because, you know, I don't go ask 7 billion people to hold space for me and help me. I don't know all of those people, but I know my friends (laughs) go to my friends. And also it just sets up a weird dynamic. And I've made missteps with that before where there has been a thread or I haven't been super clear to be like, yeah, I'm okay. And then I see people go into rescuer mode and I'm like, eh, this is a little funky. So that's one thing is me being willing to go first and share and share in an accountable way where I really am okay. I'm not just saying I'm okay, but I'm holding myself. And if I'm not able to do that, it's not time to share. That's my personal rule of thumb. If I'm not able to really hold myself, which means I might still be feeling a lot of pain, but I also can comfort that part of myself that's in pain. If I can't do that, I don't share. I don't Mm. share online and I definitely don't share in spaces that I'm holding. Another piece is that's surprising because you you also asked like what's surprising is I think the more that I create guidelines for people around how we share with one another and how we hold space for one another in a way that really honors each person's individual sovereignty and then trust people to show up in that. I find that If I'm paranoid, anxious, nervous, mistrusting of people, they're much less likely to show up in their sovereignty, in their like calm, grounded presence. And just that trusting, like I just trust us. And when I grant that trust, when I'm walking into a retreat, like I trust us to be able to handle this. I trust us to be able to hold. I trust us to be able to, as Glennon Doyle says, like we can do hard things. You know, Mm -hmm. I just trust us. Like we can do this. Somebody can, you know, have a painful emotion come up and we can handle that. You know, we're big enough, we're grown enough, we're strong enough to handle that. And here's how to tend if you're struggling. Here's how to be with it if something is triggering, right? So providing some frameworks for how to actually hold space, which really is how to hold space for ourselves, you know, how to be with what's happening within us while someone else is sharing. And then how do we react and respond in a way that isn't rescuing, fixing, whatever, any of that's making wrong, shaming, and then trusting people to show up in that. Mm, I love so much about this because showing up as a human is hard. I really like what you shared about how you show up on the internet because that was actually another question I had for you. You're so 
vulnerable and clear about your posts, but also the way you've just described it in your willingness to go all in and say, this is the depth of what I'm feeling, but also protect yourself and know that if you're not yet okay with it, you're going to go to your friends first, I think is such an important distinction. Absolutely. Totally. I've learned this through trial and error too. But if I'm not feeling well-resourced, if I'm feeling graspy, overwhelmed, like blind rage, that sort of like can't see clearly anger, nothing wrong with any of these things, by the way. But if I'm experiencing any of these things, panic, you know, it is not time for me to be broadcasting. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I can be really upset. I can be really fired up. I can be really angry. Like, you know, there are lots of things that I get super amped about and passionate about. And I often will write from that place. It's just that I don't post from that place. I will write. I will hang on to it. I'll breathe. I'll cry. I'll talk with girlfriends. I'll come back to a post and I'll feel through it again. And I mean that when I say feel through it, it sounds kind of woo-woo, but like, I just kind of note, like, where is my energy as I read this? Is it like kind of disembodied? Is it a cry for help? Is it, you know, whatever? And then if it feels clean, which is hard to define what that is, that's more of a feeling. But if it feels clean, then okay, I post it. Mm. And that could be a 10 minute process. That could be a two week or more process. But I've learned it's great to get it down on paper. It's great to write it out when I'm in the intensity of the emotion. It's not always the right time to send it. Oh, I love that. (laughs) You know, I've made the mistake of sending posting something when I'm sort of in the intensity and don't yet have a zoomed out enough view. And then I've had to clean up some of that. Mm -hmm. It's so hard for me. I think about like, does this still have the power to hurt me? Like, am I still in a vulnerable position? Mm -hmm. Am I okay with getting responses or feedback? And some things take 10 years. Like I wrote about the feelings of the breakup with my fiance 10 years ago, and I am now ready to write for modern love about that or share as you're distinguishing. The sharing and the writing are separate. I'm so glad you put that out there. Mm-hmm. And I think it's great. I just thought the one other thing I would say too is like, there's something beautiful about harnessing the intensity of emotion, you know, like writing from anger, from pain. It's like, a lot of the great art that we all know and love was created from intensity, you know, yes. pain, joy, you name it. I don't usually write poetry when I'm feeling like kind of blah, whatever. <laughs> you know, like totally. I usually need a little bit more of a peak or a valley <laughs> to feel the inspiration to like, I need to be a little more emo than that to, yeah. to get it. Yeah. And so I think there's something so beautiful about actually writing from that place. I have before you know, made notes to myself and then tried to go about something that I felt a lot of, you know, enthusiasm or passion about, and then tried to go back like two weeks later and tap back into that and write. It's much harder. It's much Mm -hmm. easier to write from the intensity, but then I'm learning. I'm still in the learning. I am learning to sit on that egg a little Mm. while longer before I hatch it. (laughs) In this context of the years that you've spent building this business and then it transforming and you learning and growing with it, you also recently became a new mother. Can Mm. you tell us about what your pregnancy and parenting journey has been like? Yes. So my son is a year and a half right now, 
oh my gosh, I feel like how much time do we have? (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, I always knew that I wanted to be a mother. It just was a knowing for me. The kind of knowing that I think I felt really envious of with my friends around career for many years. You know, my friends that were like, I always knew I wanted to be a police officer. I always knew I wanted to be a teacher. I was like, I don't know. I was grappling with that until a couple of years ago. You know, <laughs> what do I want to be when I grow up? It just, yeah, I was like, yeah, of course I'm going to be a mom. It just feels true. You know, I was married, as I mentioned, and then we divorced. And then I got into a relationship. It was a five-year relationship. It was very on and off. You know, we were very much in love. We struggled with maintaining our relationship. And so we broke up several times over the course of five years. When we finally ended the relationship, I was 36. I'm so grateful that I did this. But part of what was extremely painful about that breakup was that I felt like I might be losing my chance to become a mother. And so I recognized that there was a lot of attachment for me to being a mother, not just the sort of purity of desire or like, you know, a sense of knowing, but like, it has to happen. Like that feeling, that desperate kind of clinging, like, ah, I need this to happen. And I was like, ooh, and actually, I don't know if I would have really examined that because I think it's very common, except for that I had this moment of clarity where I realized that is a lot of pressure to put on a baby. Like if I have a child that they're going to look up at me and carry the enormous weight, really, as I perceived it, of I'm completing my mama's life, like she didn't feel whole until I got here. And I was just like, that's a lot of responsibility for a child to hold. And if I do become a mother, which I still wanted to do, I don't want my child to carry the weight of completing me and my life. I want to feel whole and complete and then bring a child into my world. And I also had to sit with of course, nothing is guaranteed. It's possible that it wouldn't happen for me. And this is so interesting because I think a lot of times, especially in more like new age spirituality, it's like, don't even entertain those thoughts. You know, if you want something, you just don't even entertain the thought that you couldn't have it. And still look at that totally differently, which is if I am terrified to entertain the thought of something, it's probably something I need to entertain the thought of. So that I'm free and not totally like attached and like shackled and it has to happen or I'm going to be miserable. Like I wanted to have the purity of desire without the crushing results of attachment. And so I went on this big journey and I kind of half-heartedly been working on it while I was in that five-year relationship. But then we broke up and I was like, okay, I'm going full steam with this and spent, you know, many months really working on that. Like it was the primary focus of like therapy sessions and journaling and just a lot of tears. And what I came to really after about five months or so, four months was, okay, I might never become a mother, you know, to a child in this lifetime. Yes. And I would be missing out on that experience. And I would also create a beautiful life for myself. And so in the same way that I'm missing out on a lot of other life experiences, like I'm not a chef in Paris and I'm not like, there are lots of life experiences that I'm quote unquote missing out on, but I still love my life, even though there are 
a million other cool things, amazing, beautiful, wonderful things that I could be doing. I'm doing this and I love this and I'm sure I would love that too, but this is also great. And I just came to this place of, yes, I still desire to be a mother. Yes, I still feel called to have a child. And if it doesn't happen, I'm also very committed to having a really extraordinary life. And I'll get to travel lots and I'll be a great auntie to many other people's children. And so I found like some peace in my heart around it. And that's when I met Noah, who's my partner. When I met him, I was like, first of all, he's nine years younger than me. And I was like, okay, this is going to be fun. Like, this is going to be, you know, like a little fling, whatever. We're just going to have fun. He's not going to be like my partner. I wasn't going to be his partner. Like, that was obvious to me. It was just, we were just going to have fun. But we just slid into things so quickly and we just wanted to be together all the time. And a month after we started dating, I had led a retreat in Costa Rica. He came to meet me there. And unintentionally, we got pregnant a month after starting to date. <laughs> and wow. Yeah, for real. <laughs> <laughs> and it took several months for me to know what my path was. I didn't know whether or not to have the child. I'm sure that some people listening to this might be like, oh my gosh, for shame, how could you say that? That's just true. It's just I grappled with it. I did not know what to do. I felt very ready in my life and in my body and in my heart to be a mother. But Noah wasn't planning on becoming a father at that time. You know, he definitely did want to be a father in his lifetime, but it wasn't like part of his plan at that time. And it wasn't part of our plan at that time. And I had to do a lot of soul searching for many months. And so did he. We did our individual work and we did work together. And what we ultimately came to is, okay, let's do this. And we're going to see if actually we can create a relationship in the process, which we had started, you know, it wasn't a one night stand. We really were in relationship. It was just very short. We had to get to know one another. We had to continue to get to know one another while dealing with pregnancy and pregnancy hormones. And I'll go through this next part quickly, which is that my pregnancy was the best of times. It was the worst of times. (laughs) Like I was super lucky to not have morning sickness and for the most part and to like still want to eat a variety of foods and I felt pretty good in my body and didn't have a lot of complications. I had a bit of like placenta previa, but I kept kind of pushing off their insistence that I would get a C-section at a certain date. I just kept pushing that off and pushing that off and then it resolved itself at 37 weeks. You know, just that it wasn't in hindsight that big of a deal at the time. It felt a bit of a bigger deal. But overall, my pregnancy in that respect was super easeful. My emotions were like, oh, my God, <laughs> I, I was really all over the place. I think it was, you know, hormones and also, oh, my goodness, I'm in a brand new relationship. I'm having a child with someone that I don't really know that well. We don't even know where we're going to live, you know whoa, it was dizzying. And I had to work through a lot of that. And also, I so see the beauty of the fact that I had basically 37 years of repressed anger come up. Like I was not familiar with feeling angry before I was pregnant. I think I was really used to 
if something happened in my life that one might feel anger over, I would kind of go quickly to like compassion and sadness, but not really mm. feel anger. And I felt a lot of anger, felt a lot of intensity. It was really emotionally trying time. And then I had my child and we have been very lucky to have a healthy child and things have been much more easeful since. Oh, interesting. I'm curious about all of this. And I want to dive in a little bit to this experience of anger because mm. I remember my therapist explaining to me what rage was when I was pregnant <laughs> with my first kid. She's like, I don't think you're feeling tired. And I don't think you're feeling sad. Like, I think you're feeling rage. And it blew my mind open. <sighs> the way that we embody women's emotions, like we really direct women to feel tired or sad as kind of default states of emotion. We wow. fortunately get to cry as well. But can you talk more about this? Like what happened? What was it like for you? Yeah. Rage is the right word. And I so agree with you that the quote unquote acceptable emotions for women in our culture are like sadness, but not too much. Right. <laughs> you know, right. And then suck it up and keep moving. Overwhelm, you know, those are acceptable emotions. And yeah, rage is not one of them. And as a society, we're super uncomfortable in general with rage. So yes, I felt rage. I felt 37 years of it that had been packed all over, probably all in my cells, all over my body. And it was, and in many ways still is, a learning curve for me, learning how to be with that rage. Because I haven't been with it my whole life. I haven't had to be with it for my whole life. I figured out how to not feel rage. I figured out how to repress it so early on that I don't even remember feeling it in my lifetime, maybe when I was a very young child. And so I have had to learn how to be with it. And that's felt a lot like being on a little bicycle with no training wheels and falling off over and over and scraping my knees. And so, you know, it was like, I remember being pregnant and like, I was angry because he came home 10 minutes after he was supposed to come home. And I wanted a particular thing on the grocery list and he didn't read it right and got something different. And then I was like, so angry and crying and like threw it at him across the kitchen and ran into the other room and slammed the door. And, you know, just like, whoa, <laughs> like a top tantrum, <laughs> you know, but I just felt all of this rage in my system and really did not know how to be with it. And it was so intense. And it's just been this messy journey of recognizing, yeah, this is rage. This is what it looks like. This is what it feels like right now. And how do I be with that? How do I hold it in myself? How do I get underneath it and get curious about what it's showing me as important to me? And yes. then what's underneath that? And then what's underneath that? Yeah, you know, yeah. Sometimes it's like, well, what's important to me is that you actually pay attention to what I say. And I'm like, okay, well, what's underneath that? <laughs> right, right, right. Like, okay, well, what's important to me is that that we feel connected. You know, if I get deep down enough, there's like a very sincere yearning underneath that, you know, and something that I need to tend within myself as well. So yeah, it's been such a process. I really feel whatever, if this is how it works or isn't, it doesn't really matter to me so much as that when I frame it this way, it feels really empowering. It gives some purpose to it, which is that my way of relating to my emotions now as a mother is I have to learn how to feel these emotions and how to be with them. 
you know, which is complex because we aren't taught how to be with intense emotions generally. So I have to learn how to really feel them and make space to feel them. And then I have to learn how to be with them for myself, first of all, and so that my child has a model for how to be with rage and doesn't kind of default into what our society does with rage, which is to push it down and pretend it's not there, but then it kind of leaks out in other ways or to lash out at other people or animals or self-harming, right? I see all of these things as not just deep sadness, but also repression of rage, repression of anger. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of conversation or more conversation in the world now than five years ago or 10 years ago about depression and anxiety. And I think we also need to include in this conversation anger. Mm-hmm. How do we as a culture start to face anger and our clear inability as a collective to be with it? And I feel like my responsibility or an aspect of my responsibility in that is learning how to be with it within myself and not make myself wrong for being angry, but also learn how to not just lash out or stew and kind of like have it sit like acid in my own system, like how to actually be with it. Oh, it is the hardest practice. And I'm right there alongside you. Like, how do you hold space? to feel it and to let it move through you and to understand it and to respect it, but then also allow it to release. These are not easy questions. And there is no model that I have found in our current Western, like Americanized culture that even begins to teach us this. Totally. And I think a lot of, you know, what we see is sort of like what I call the pour water on it, like just douse it in water and like, I'm going to like meditate this out of my system. I'm going to like, you know, just pour water on it. You know, how do we let the fire actually move? Because there's something important. There's a reason why it's there. It's not just a useless emotion. A lot of what we wrap around it is not helpful, but the intensity, the emotion that there's something there. And I think a lot of that sort of like, I'm going to pour water on it has us turn a blind eye to some of the things that we would otherwise feel pain about that if we really allow ourselves to feel that pain, that anger, we would do something about it. Yes. And yes. <laughs> Thank you for saying this out loud. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, meditate and like feel that intensity of that so that we can actually like link arms and arms and do something about some of the things that we feel so enraged about that are so unjust. And so I think of, you know, meditation or anything that kind of helps me get into that more like Zen-like state. The purpose of that, if anything, is to help me be able to see with greater clarity what to do with the intensity of the emotion. It's not the thing that manages the emotion. I'm just nodding my head yes over here, which is hard to see on an audio podcast. (laughs) Um, So I would love to ask too about this experience through pregnancy and now a year and a half into motherhood. Can you talk about how your business has changed or grown or evolved alongside your own transformations as a parent? What's changed for you both conceptually and then also logistically or otherwise? Yeah. 
so much and so much is still changing. One, I feel like I've gotten much clearer about the kind of support that I need in my business, you know, who fits and who doesn't fit with that. I think before I was a mother, I had a lot more bandwidth for like second chances, third chances, fourth chances, fifth chances, you know, maybe I'll just take this on. Maybe, you know, like I still give people opportunities and still give people chances. It's just that there's much more like of a clear yes or no in my system if I can pay attention to that and honor it. And I just have less bandwidth. You know, it's like if I'm really like, struggling with someone on my team, for example, I'm not letting that kind of fester as long as I used to before. You know, I'm not saying I'm perfect and still sometimes that frustration festers a little bit, but I'm quicker than I used to be dealing with it and getting clear about what's needed, what the business needs for support and what I need for support within the business. So I actually feel like I've become a better mama to my business too. I feel like a better mother to the business. It's shaped my team and it's helped me be much clearer about, you know, who's on the bus and who's not and what kind of support we need. That's been a big thing. Another thing is it's had me crave more of what I love and feel much less tolerance for the things that I didn't love as much, but kind of did because I thought that's what I people wanted or it's okay, I can do that. It's just helped me see more clearly what's in my deepest joy what's in my zone of genius and what isn't. And I would love to be able to say, you know, oh, because I want to spend all of my time with my child and anything that takes me away from him. I've heard some others say that and I honor that. And for me, it's less that. I love working. I love being with my child and I also love working. So for me, it's more, I think that there's just clarity in my system about what gives me energy and what feels depleting because my energy is already depleted more than it's ever been as my sort of like baseline set point since being pregnant and being a mother. It's like my kind of baseline energy level is a very different thing than it was before I had (laughs) basically any responsibility outside of myself and my business. And so when something depletes me, it's more obvious to me and I'm much like more willing to say no to those things. So that's had me do more in-person stuff. It's had me get a little bit clearer about what kind of boundaries I need to put into place with things like Facebook groups. Hmm. And then had me be clear about like, okay, great. Then we need more support here. Cool. We're going to bring more support in so that I'm less in there. It feels a little bit more draining and depleting to me. I feel like it's helped me kind of track where my energy is as well. Hmm it's really had me think a lot more about legacy. And that's something that I'm really in that conversation right now. So we'll see, maybe we can check in in a year and see how it's reshaped things. But it's had me think a lot more about legacy, both in terms of what impact is my work actually leaving now? What impact do I want it to leave? What needs to change for that to happen? So that's been a big thing, but also legacy in terms of you know, how do I do my work in a way that still gives me the space and presence to be with my child right now, you know, in these times where he really needs mama and I love him and want to be with him too. So he is also my legacy in a way. I think that the way that I want to show up in our relationship and for myself so that I can show up in my relationship with my son has shaped 
my business as well and reshaped how I think about and how I actually do my work. I will say one other thing that has been much harder than I anticipated. I've always been in awe of mothers, just period. I I don't know why, but I've just always felt this great reverence for mothers and have really like admired mother entrepreneurs. I'm like, there's like a level of focus that I've experienced for a lot of mothers that are also entrepreneurs are like, well, I've got three hours. I'm going to do in three hours what most people do in a week. And I was really looking forward to that. And actually, I find that challenging. And I've realized that what it is, is if I don't have great self-care, then when I go to do my work, I want some time to myself and I end up stealing that time by like dithering around on Facebook or watching a video or texting with friends. Like none of those things are inherently bad. I've noticed that it's actually been harder for me to separate that distraction stuff, the noise from my work time. And that is to me an indication of like, oh, I need better self-care because I'm trying to steal moments for myself here rather than giving to myself. Yes, that makes so much sense. It's like a yes and. There's both. Sometimes it gives you more focus, but then other times you just can't get into the stuff that you have to get into in those little fragments of time, especially if you haven't taken care of yourself. I mean, at some point it becomes so partitioned that it just is a joke, at least in my experience. It's like I can't actually write a really deep thing in nine minute increments as much as I would like to pretend that I could. My brain is just mush and it's fried. So that's, yeah. Hmm. Totally. That's another thing that's changed is putting more realistic buffers between tasks, like transition times I need more of. Because even though I have the luxury of working from home and I'm downstairs, so my child doesn't really see me when I'm downstairs, as soon as I go upstairs, he wants a cuddle. He wants to show me something. He wants to nurse. He wants, you know, there's a little like, ah, he's getting upset if I'm walking away you know, I'm not going to jump from one task to the next in a blink. You know, there's no such thing as like, oh, pee break and back to work. (laughs) You know, so if I'm going to take a break, or I'm in transitioning between two tasks, and I'm going to go anywhere near my child, then I need more space there. And so I've just learned to buffer in more of those transition times, because I have to. Right, right. Because that's what it's actually happening. And it's better that we just know. Yeah. Right. Then be like, oh my gosh, at the end of the day, there were three hours of tasks that I didn't do. Well, yeah, because you need that three hours to, you know, change a diaper and give a hug and do whatever else. So what do you wish that more people, friends, peers, colleagues, businesses knew about parenting? Or put another way, if you could go back and tell your past self something about parenting, what would you say? Oh, this is such a great question. I think it would be that one of the greatest gifts I can give my child is to love myself. And that is not an easy thing. That is a lifelong work. If I keep myself on the hook for that, for really loving myself, for finding And noticing the parts of myself that are hard to love for forgiving myself when I've done things that I regret or wish I had done differently for loving my body. Like if I keep myself on the hook for being in the ever unfolding journey of self-love, that is probably the greatest thing that I could give my child. 
because through that he will learn, he'll have a model for loving and respecting himself and loving and respecting women. Yeah. And it's lifelong work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That would be the thing is just like, I'm going to have a pet project for my entire life and it's called me and not fixing me, but loving me. Yeah. In your experience of motherhood and then seeing the many cultures around what motherhood is or should be or the stories we tell around motherhood, what do you think needs to change around how we talk about motherhood? The good, the bad, the ugly. Like, what do you wish were different? I wish that we were having even more of a conversation and then an actual change around mothers being supported and in significant ways. I don't just mean like somebody making dinner once a week so she can have that night off from making dinner. I mean such a radical, radical shift in how we take care of mothers as a culture and with our social services. I mean, I think it's in France. You have a baby and they send somebody to your house. (laughs) The government sends somebody to your house to pick up your laundry, do your laundry, help you with the baby. Like, I mean, and at the bare minimum, I feel like we need that. And I'm happy to put some of my tax dollars towards giving much deeper support to mothers, especially low income mothers. And I think just recognizing how critical it is, like how critical it is. If you look at any culture you know, from when we were living more communally, it's like you'd have like the first month, the first 40 days, the first three months of mom just taking care of the baby and everyone else taking care of mama. And so I think that, you know, part of this is something that I always do when I have a pregnant or often have done when I have a pregnant friend, which is setting up a meal train so that every day, perhaps, or five days a week for the first six weeks or eight weeks of the baby's life, like, friends are bringing over home cooked meals and no one ever has to cook dinner, you know, for that first couple of months, like those things that actually make a huge difference for new mothers and not just new mothers, but I do think that this is a responsibility that we have as a society to recognize that the people who are caring for our most vulnerable beings or some of our most vulnerable beings, young children, are by and large overwhelmed, overworked, stressed out, physically depleted, emotionally frazzled. And that's not a woman problem or a mother problem. It's everyone's issue. And I would like to see us as a society wake up to that and each of us look around at like, who are the new mothers? Who are the mothers of small children in my life? How can I help? And what I find is a lot of the people helping mothers with small children are also mothers with small children. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Lovely and sweet, but we're kind of some of the most under-resourced people to be doing that job. What we really need is the neighbors and the friends and the cousins and the aunties and the uncles and the, you know, the younger siblings, like I would love to send out like a giant rally cry, like, hey, every human in the world, if you know a mother of a small child in your world, just help her. Yeah. <laughs> Here's and your to-do if, list. <laughs> yeah. If she doesn't know what kind of help she needs, make some suggestions. Right. You know? Right. And invite her to things. Go over to her house. Like ask 
to hang out. You know, this is also another thing is like just less isolation, more connection. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing I would love to most see about motherhood and the conversation around motherhood is just more support. Yeah. This has been really amazing. I want to close. I could talk to you for hours because these topics are never (laughs) ending. I want to close by asking you two questions. The first is, what's next for you? What's coming up in the year ahead? And what are you excited about? Yes. So a creation of not just mine, but several people who co-created it together is Global Sisterhood Day. And Global Sisterhood Day is a free annual global event that supports women in gathering in groups of 10 all around the world, in person, some virtually, and sharing what's on our hearts. It's really beautiful. I love that we've been able to have it be free for people to participate in, free for people to host and receive some really simple training around hosting. When I got pregnant, it became really clear that I had to take this out of my hands and put it in the hands of several other capable people. So part of what I'm working on right now is developing the team that can steward Global Sisterhood Day and give it deeper roots and stretch its legs even more. So that's something that I'm working on right now. And I'm also working on restructuring some things in my business so that I can work with more people at uh, more affordable prices, just feeling called to do that, really. And also, there is a book on the horizon, which is the first time that I've said that out loud. (laughs) Oh, I just totally I was like, what? What? That's I'm so excited about that. That's exciting. Yeah, I'm excited about it, too. I don't know what it looks like yet, but we'll see. Oh, I can't wait to hear and see more about that evolution. Okay, my next question for you is actually inspired by you, which is who have you learned from? Who are your teachers and guides? So two of the mentors that I have most worked with in recent years, maybe in the last like five or six years, are Elaine Kalila Doughty and Hiro Boga. Hero Boga is H-I-R-O-B-O-G-A dot com. And Elaine Kalila is priestesspresence.com. Just incredible, wonderful, wise, wisdom holding women. I love them dearly. They have been very influential for me and have really shaped my work. My work with them has really shaped my work. So those are two of them. Oh my gosh, there are so many. <sighs> We'll start with we can okay. start with those two because I'll yeah. also direct people to your site in the show notes. And where can they find out more about you and the work you do? Mm-hmm. So my website is my name, MishaMoodley.com, and also SisterHoodDay.com as well. And that's for everything related to Global Sisterhood Day. Mm. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's been so wonderful to have this conversation. Like you said, I feel like we could talk all day. Maybe we can do this again. (laughs) These topics are not small. (laughs) Not small, but thank you. This podcast is made possible by sponsors like you. Consider supporting this podcast with a monthly donation on our Patreon page. Head to patreon.com slash startup pregnant. We've got folks who we call our coffee friends who donate the equivalent of a cup of coffee each month to make this show possible. And we're backed by companies we believe in that can help make the lives of busy entrepreneurs and parents a little bit easier 
easier. If you want to become one of our company sponsors, head to startuppregnant.com slash podcast and get in touch. And you know, I always say this and I mean it. Leave us a review on iTunes if you like our show. It takes a few seconds and it really does help us a lot. If you want more of what we're talking about, go over to startuppregnant.com and get on our email list. We send out a weekly newsletter with time-saving tips for parents and entrepreneurs. And I always include a weekly gadget or tool or something awesome that we've stumbled upon to help make your life just a little bit easier. And as always, you can reach out to us at hello at startuppregnant.com. We love hearing from you.